Hello and welcome to the Technocast. I'm Edwin Gilson. And this is going to be my final episode of Technocast because uh, my PhD is coming to its business end and I should really concentrate on that. But it is a pleasure in my last episode to be joined by Felix Clutson, my friend and colleague at the University of Surrey who researches football. So in keeping with our Narratives of Nation current theme, Felix is going to be talking about the ways in which football transcends borders, a little bit about sports washing, and near the end of our chat, a bit about the fate of his beloved Reading FC. So I'll be back with Felix for a chat a bit later, but in the meantime, here he is. Our Narrative of Nation today starts on a Maltese headland with Russell Crowe. Obviously. Why? Because today we're going to talk about sports. Obviously. Hi, I'm Felix, and I'm researching the creation and translation of football museum texts in the context of identity construction. What is coming up is a little bit of a tangent from my direct research, but still relevant. Anyway, let me set that opener up, and we'll come back to the man with leaves down his trousers, (coughs) Russell, in just a moment. From a sporting perspective, Questions of nationhood and national identity have been key to administrators' consolidations of power, particularly through trying to cultivate an idea of positive physical and personality traits as part of an image of the nation's character. There are naturally real problems with such identity construction, particularly in creating one particular image of what a citizen of that nation should be and look like. One particular danger is a cultivation of such an image that cannot be deviated from in any way, as well as an encouragement to be aggressive towards other nations who are seen as inferior. And this is probably the type of thing that we think of when we think about national identity from a negative perspective. But the other type, perhaps more sinister, is the process known as sports washing, something which is one of the biggest issues in the sports world today. Sports washing along with greenwashing, social washing and sock washing, are a set of actions designed to use public-facing events, campaigns or the like to distract attention and scrutiny away from negative reputations and condemned acts, such as oil companies publicising renewable energy research, multinational corporations who exploit cheap labour, having a high-profile charitable foundation, or sticking an extra tablet in the washing machine when an unnamed individuals plates of meat are threatening to go nuclear. The Men's Football World Cup in Qatar is perhaps the most high profile example of such an event in recent history. The staging of the world's second biggest sporting event against the backdrop of homosexual illegality and mistreatment of a huge migrant worker population. However, it is Saudi Arabia which is making the news headlines on a regular basis for this reason at the moment. While they have been dipping their toe into the murky waters of sports-based propaganda since the 70s, it is really in the last 10 years that they have started diving in from the high board, mostly through their public investment fund, or PIF, run, or maybe not, by the government. They claim it is part of a project to diversify their economic portfolio by 2030, because eventually the oil wells will, you know, run dry, God forbid. In this short time, they have hosted huge WWE events, a number of high-profile boxing matches, muscled in on world golf in a long-running saga, 
set up a continental level cycle race and cut a deal to host the end of season champions tournament in tennis. Another deal through 2035 to host a race during the Formula One season, as well as large investments in McLaren and Aston Martin teams and sponsoring the world's biggest cricket competition. And football? Well, they bought Sheffield United, Spanish club Almeria, agreed a strategic partnership with Manchester United, staged Italian and Spanish cup finals, gained at least controlling stakes in clubs in Belgium, India and France, hired Lionel Messi as an ambassador, lured big-name players such as Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar Jr. to go and play in the league in Saudi Arabia, with Saudi clubs spending nearly a billion dollars in the summer of 2023, have a seemingly guaranteed Men's World Cup in 2034, the 2027 Men's Asian Cup, 2023's newly expanded Club World Cup, and have entered negotiations into a $200 million investment into the African Football Federation. By the way, they set up a women's national football team in 2022. Most pertinently for us, though, in the UK, in 2021, they bought an 80% stake in Newcastle United. Now, the official line is that this isn't a state running a football club. Indeed, the PIF passed something allegedly described as a fit and proper test, and the Premier League decided there was no direct government involvement. The head of the PIF, I hear you not ask? R.H. Prince Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdelaziz al-Saud. Uh-huh. And when you consider the global scrutiny on their grim understatement of the year record on human rights, it all starts to leave a taste in the mouth, a little bit like when matcha gets a bit burnt and goes all fishy. Then there's the away kit. Newcastle have had a number of beautiful iterations down the years. Check out the red and blue number from the mid-90s, for example. Suddenly, though, they're wearing white shirts, green shorts and white socks. And I will give you three guesses as to which national team that exactly mirrors. Oh, you only needed one. Sorry, my apologies. The basic premise, of course, is that getting eyeballs on the sport and the neatly spliced scenery takes them off the reports of execution, torture and discrimination. So, what links Middle Eastern oil refineries and a Maltese Russell Crowe? The answer is actually a simple question. Are you not entertained? Yes, the spot on the coast in question is the headland across the bay from Valletta, the capital of Malta, and is the site of Fort Ricasoli, where some of the scenes in Gladiator are filmed. While the term may be new, it is important to note that sports washing has been going on for thousands of years and can be directly linked to two of the most famous cultural outputs from the ancient Mediterranean, the Olympics and gladiatorial combat. Putting on big events allowed leaders to distract the population from other tribulations in life, display status and spectacle, create narratives which foster a sense of community in the name of the location, and to put their name on everyone's lips. To be honest, when you put it like that, it's a bit of a no-brainer for your average megalomaniac dictator. And actually what we see with Maximus is one of the great subversions of sports washing, even if it's fictional. Looking at the examples from the ancient world illustrates usefully, though, not only how we probably shouldn't chain up bears and make people fight them, but also how globalisation has transformed the way this sort of smoke and mirror works. Whereas in the Colosseum, things were set up to put the emperor at the centre of the crowd's excitement, especially with that big game of heads down, thumbs up they would play, financial investment and spectacle now 
is about putting a nation like Saudi Arabia at the centre of the world's attention, often actually without really bothering about the opinions of those who live in the country. Of course, the TV money is quite nice too, although that's also ironic, as the main stumbling block to the takeover of Newcastle wasn't the (coughs) alleged government links, but because they'd been legally broadcasting Premier League matches in a gloriously catty bit of niggle with their neighbours Qatar, whose BN Sports broadcaster had the official rights, and thus Saudi Arabia had potentially been costing the Prem a bucket load of cash. So, yeah, we find ourselves in different territory from the more conform or die, we're better than everyone else brand of nationalism, such as we saw at Hitler's Olympics, or in football terms, the 1934 Italy team of Vittorio Pozzo, who won the World Cup on home soil, I kid you not, at the national stadium of the National Fascist Party, where the use of nationalism was many things, but you probably wouldn't say subtle. These interconnected days, it has developed into something less bombastic, but more insidious. No longer a show of strength, instead a sort of weird but very effective entertainment and riches advert. Well, this has been pretty grim listening, hasn't it? Almost as if what we could really do with is some athletic entertainment to distract us from the daily grind. Ah. And yet, and yet, while examples of negative nationalism-motivated actions, both in the UK and abroad, are all too frequent, sport really does have the potential to galvanise. You can easily argue that national identities matter far less socially than they used to, but in a society where identities are fragmented, cultural phenomena which can provide a common ground, such as football, Indeed, Glenn Hoddle said that him and Aussie Ardiles couldn't speak to each other when they played for Spurs, so they spoke to each other in the language of football. Well, they do have a genuine communal potential. This can be political, such as the actions of Catalan fans in Barcelona in the Franco era, or more social, such as the popularity of the Lionesses, leading to developments in getting young girls into sport and educational institutions. Under Gareth Southgate's tenure of the men's England team, diversity has been brought to the fore as forming part of representation, particularly in the face of dispiriting actions from a minority, such as booing of anti-racism gestures and illegal and violent entry of some to the Euro 2021 final at Wembley. In the last couple of years, we've seen social issues raised by national teams such as Iran, Norway, and most recently Spain and Sweden together, which have then fed into wider global debates. The interconnectedness which Saudi Arabia has taken advantage of economically, can also be used in a positive way, in examples of the so-called global, where local actions affect global ones and vice versa. Of course, national representation can always teeter on a dangerous edge, but I want to finish by saying that it doesn't have to, that it can be about celebrating the things that we share. In Withington, in Manchester, there is a mural of Marcus Rashford, the England and Manchester United striker. This wasn't put up solely because of him sticking it in the onion bag, though. Rashford used his profile as an international footballer to campaign against child food poverty, in particular during COVID, something which the government... Um... Yeah. Then, in the final of the Euros, he and two other black players missed penalties, contributing to Italy winning, and the mural was defaced with horrible racist messages. Rapidly, the community covered the side of the wall in messages of love and support before it was restored to its former glory. Now, most of those messages were from a local community that of course has great respect for him, but it felt in that moment 
that from some quarters at least, people recognised something in Rashford and others in the England team that really represented them as part of a community. Genuine compassion. Unfortunately, acts of sports washing and discrimination within the sporting arena will endure. But there will also be opportunities to enact change through sport as countries negotiate this century and its obstacles. And, at the end of the day, I'll put my arms around pretty much anyone's shoulders and sing three lines with them while somehow not spilling all of my pint. It seems strange that financial domination and distraction from executions can sit at the same social intersection as shared kindness and community celebration. But in this case, it really does. Patriotism is a tricky one at the very, very best of times. But maybe we can let our shared roots grow into a sharing of compassion. Or, as Russell Crowe once drooled, smouldering into a camera, whatever comes out of those gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. And Felix joins us now in the studio, an actual studio, in the bowels of the University of Surrey. Hello, Felix. Hello. So, thank you for your very stimulating presentation, which touched on a lot of timely and pertinent issues and would have hopefully been of interest to people that don't even like football that much, hopefully. Um, so, speaking of which, when you tell people that you research football, it might be friends, family, other researchers, how do they tend to react? Uh, yes, there is a particular noise that people tend to make, which is an, oh, really? Ah. And it's that second, ah, that exists somewhere on the spectrum between kind of really interested and utterly bewildered. You know, people are surprised often, which I completely understand because it's not a subject that you would necessarily uh, automatically think is academic. No, well, prove the doubters wrong. Why is football a worthy subject of study? It's kind of two-parted. One is it's, you know, massive popularity. Um it's one of the few cultural phenomena which is enjoyed and consumed and participated in all over the world. And then on the other side, you have the fact that because in a lot of the places where this happens, it's woven into the fabric of society in a, in a particular way or the cultural landscape. It means that it's interconnected with lots of other different aspects of society from economics through to art and, and a lot in between. So, it really is a, a really useful example of cultural output and uh, therefore I think a really useful thing to to explore. Yeah, and it's also changing massively, of course, always changing, which I'm sure is also a point of interest for you. In your research, you mentioned that term sports washing in the episode and we've seen high profile incidents of that recently, as you mentioned. Why do business people or even oil states uh, invest in football? Uh, why, is, why is the sport so attractive to them? It's an interesting one because I think we're still sort of learning that. It's only really in the last couple of decades that that has become so prominent. Uh, the kind of simple answer is that there is money to be made. There is a lot of money to be made when you look at the scale of some of the broadcasting rights or sponsorship deals um, that can be struck. Um, it is possible to make a lot of money. But it's an incredibly risky um, way to make money. The main reason that they invest in it is because of its exposure 
and its popularity. So there's kind of two sides to that. One is that the the customer base is incredibly loyal, um, and people continue to use, uh, continue to consume football on a, on a big scale because of kind of personal attachments. And the other is that because it's so accessible and it's so um, widely broadcasted, it allows you to have a really strong image or voice in what you want to uh, project. Is that is that necessarily true though? Because if you think about the Saudi investment in Newcastle, is their image projected through that really? It, it, was, it seems to me that it still remains kind of shadowy behind the scenes and they just use Newcastle as a bit of a screen. Yeah, but I think the... What happens is that the image is one of power and influence and and richness, and even if that's not necessarily partic- particularly solidified, like like you just said, um, it's still better than the other things that people might focus on. Other things, yes, the uh, such as um, you know homosexuality being Ill- illegal or um, executions or people having their hands cut off or whatever. Indeed, so. What does it say about human nature that people and organisations are keen to use football, the people's game, at one point the people's game, as a screen or a tool for financial gain and profile boosting in the way that you describe? Well, I think it says that people want influence and they want power as well as money. Um, And I think it says that people in power understand to a certain extent what is going to get them the most power and that's things that bring people together in a communal way because when you can reach the biggest audience you're going to get the biggest impact yeah and we saw that uh, as an example even at the world cup final didn't we with Lionel messi being draped in the um qatari garment uh, some people saw that as sports washing some people saw it as you know messi respecting the the local culture and customs but you know it's a debate that that uh, rumbled on. Um, so is, is quite a big one, but is football eating itself? It sometimes feels like that. I am, I should have said this before, but I'm a big football fan. I don't research it like, like Felix does. I don't have the knowledge that he does, but sometimes just, it feels like football's becoming more disengaging because the identities of clubs are becoming a little bit confused and blurred when there's so much money involved. Um, and there's that local global kind of split as well. Um, so sometimes the Premier League, for example, does feel increasingly disengaging, to me at least. Do you feel that way? And broadly, do you think that football is eating itself? I think the short answer is yes, because the the direction of travel only appears to be going in, in one, only appears to be going one way at the moment. You know, it's always a, a, a bigger story about um, overseas investment, about transfer records, uh, about... Um, players striking massive sponsorship deals uh you don't hear about um you know uh investment from local people uh you don't hear about uh clubs prioritizing I, there are examples obviously you can look at um, athletic bilbao for example but most clubs don't prioritize local connections over success or or uh, or money and there's nothing i suppose there's nothing inherently wrong with investment from international sources it's just where that money comes from uh, and then how it maybe skews the game as well in that, you know, Man City and Newcastle are now going to be by far the richest clubs in the Premier League, for example. Yes, uh, and I think the huge increase in in those financial power bases 
means that success is almost not entirely, but largely dictated by your financial power. And it means that you prioritize making money over almost anything else or having the most money. Yes. So does that does all that sully your engagement with and enjoyment of the beautiful game as we know it? Yes, it does. I think it does to varying degrees at varying times. But I think when you look at the at the sums that are involved and you look at the way that um, people uh, in those positions of power are using football uh, as an objective for other motives, that it, it does feel less authentic than maybe it used to. And, you know, the world has changed and globalization is, you know, just part of, of, of the development of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine. Like, I mean, growing up watching brilliant foreign players that came into the, the league because of the money that Premier League had and was able to attract talent from elsewhere. People like Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, these kind of people. Um, so that kind of globalized aspect can work in a good way for football, can't it? But it has a, a negative I just, it doesn't, a lot of the time now, it doesn't feel very real. Hmm, what do you mean by that? Not very real. Well, I think that organisations, when when you have countries buying clubs and um, club networks being spread out and you have things like Red Bull. Red Bull own a number of clubs um, across the world. Um, they started in Salzburg, where the company's based, and, and most famously, they um, own a club in Leipzig. And they were the first kind of people to take over a club, uh, make them high profile and kind of publicly say that they were doing so um, in order to boost their corporate uh, impact. They were quite open about that, were they? Yeah, they were. They were. And, um, you know, that was at the expense of community clubs. And I think people saw it as being really cynical when people who you know are football fans think it should be much more of a community-based um, institution. And I think that what happens is when you have clubs like this who exist for themselves, you kind of take away the personality of the players, you take away the personality of the community around them. And it therefore has this kind of slightly soulless feel to it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But just to use an example... From this week, we had Newcastle uh, funded by or owned by the uh, PIF from Saudi Arabia beating Paris Saint-Germain, who are owned by Qatar. But within that game, which would seem to be a classic example of what you just said, the soullessness, we had two local lads from Newcastle scoring goals. So maybe it isn't all black and white, to use a pun about Newcastle, you know, Overall, the, the ownership structure, all the external issues around that game, you can see how it's like the epitome of everything that's wrong about modern football. In the game itself, you still have these quite memorable moments of of local players having huge, huge moments on, on a platform that never would have thought would be imaginable to them. So is it always black and white? No, and I don't think it ever will be because, of course, these things are, you know, are very complex. And I think that's one of the reasons the football is, is so interesting uh, to me. Um, as I was talking about the interconnectedness with stuff earlier, you know, it, there's a lot of different factors which go into defining its cultural position, its popularity, uh, how people see it. 
And so, you know, those kinds of stories are always going to be interesting, I think, because it it does really set in contrast those kind of global objectives of the the people who own the club and the the local objectives of the you know the kids who grew up in that community and in stand you know sitting in the stands and all that hmm but it's a weird one isn't it because sometimes players are quizzed about it and they kind of get a bit defensive and you know about the ownership i mean but it's not really their prerogative they are just there to play football there's an argument to be had about the extent to which footballers should have a voice in these things and jordan henderson the england player was criticized recently for having once proclaimed himself as an LGBT ally and then going to play in, in Saudi Arabia where it is illegal. So we've seen players do these kind of hypocritical moves, seemingly hypocritical, but how much can you reasonably expect players to kind of um, resist these? these? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, they really don't have, have much power. The kinds of figures that we're talking about with, you know, uh, the PIF and, and the Qatari ownership of of PSG, as you mentioned before, they're kind of astronomical and they have so much power um, and so much money that actually the the players, even though they have high profiles and they make a lot of money themselves, aren't really on the same on the same plane. The problem is, as I said, this kind of interconnectedness with from football into other aspects of life, particularly with how high profile these these players now are, mean that. It's it's changed from what it used to be and what the role of footballers used to be in kind of society is not the same. And I think, you know, um, players are going to continue to be expected to, to react to these things now because we have so much more knowledge around so much quicker. So whether they're prepared properly or whether they really care or, or whatever is kind of irrelevant in the same way that whether we like the fact that the PIF owns clubs is kind of irrelevant because it, you know, there's there's not much um, we can do about it. It's pretty grim though, isn't it? You're saying oh, yeah. it's irrelevant how we feel about these things that will happen anyway. Yeah. I, and that's that's something that's really quite difficult to get hold of. The, you know, the idea that someone would buy a football club just to make themselves look good. It just feels, you know, so bizarre. There are other models around yeah. The model in Germany about fan ownership always gets mentioned. Can you briefly explain? You're a bit of a German expert. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they have this, um, and it's a legal, you know, it's a, it's a law. And they it's called the 50 plus one rule. And essentially, um, clubs in Germany have to be owned um, at least 51% by the uh, members of the club. So what it means is that that you don't get kind of big time investors in most situations. Um, you can because you can only buy minority stakes, and it means that they have much more clout in terms of uh, TV kickoff times, uh, ticket prices, uh, engagement with fans, these sorts of things. Um, and you know they feel a lot more like they they are a part of the club. Now it, it doesn't always work like that. We've had examples with Hoffenheim. And, you know, RB Leipzig, for example, um, where they circumvented this by only having 17 club members who all worked for an Austrian drinks maker um, and, you know, could do it that way. But most of the clubs, um, you know, are owned by the by the members. And would it work in England? I think it's it's a tricky one, that, because I think in Germany they are... 
uh, more politically engaged generally. And I think there is more of a kind of tradition of that. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't know if it would really take off in the same way here. But personally, I would love to see that. The problem is we would have to accept that club budgets would drop, um, that we might not have all the best players in, in, in England, etc. Talking about football in crisis, you've got a very local version of this because you are a Reading fan and Reading are going through a terrible time at the moment. Actually, I'm kind of making light of it, but it is pretty serious. So what is the issue with Reading FC? It's a financial issue. Um, For years, we were run very poorly financially um, and made huge losses. I think there was one point. Our wage bill was uh, over 200% of our... Um, income which I mean you know it's just not ideal Um, and that meant we got deducted points and um, consequently got relegated Um, and the problem is that there hasn't that has caused us to have transfer embargo so we've not been able to replenish the squad but also actually the money has kind of run dry um, and wages haven't been paid, and tax hasn't been paid. We've had four winding up petitions. Uh, the women's team also got uh, relegated, and they've had to go part time. Um, you know, we've only been able to sign free transfers. Uh, we couldn't get the manager we wanted because they couldn't agree the deal. There's, and and obviously the tensions not only affect the players on the pitch, but they affect the backroom staff. So there've been, you know, lots of rumours of tensions at board level and stuff. Um, and uh, you know, it's. It's felt very existential. There's um, some fan groups have been set up to try and force the owner to sell, uh, all these sorts of things. So it, it turmoil is the word I would use, but it's been kind of a downward spiral. And it's been coming over a number of years. You you could see it coming and we just kind of survived. We've survived by the you know skin of our teeth and, and finally it's um, caught up with us. Catalogue of misery, isn't it? But is this indicative of a broader pattern or problem? Yeah, definitely. We, we've seen a number of examples. Um, Reading is perhaps the most um, high profile uh, over the last few years, but we've we've seen a number of teams struggle with this. Um, you know, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, we've had Scunthorpe, who are now, you know, homeless um, after their owner withdrew uh, their their financial support. So we, we see it quite a lot. And I think this is the, one of the other problems with the um, with the money at the top is that because there is so much money there, owners are prepared to gamble massively to get there. And then when it doesn't work out, they can either just walk away or there isn't any money left. And, and actually the, the consequences of that can be really dire. We've seen clubs like um, Berry, for example, actually, you know, fold... Uh, which is, you know, just incredibly sad for the local community. Well, yeah, I was going to say, again, it has that local impact, doesn't it? Severing that tie with the community, uh, which, of course, is where many of these teams came up from, on that community level. Um, so a lot of the negative aspects of football in there and some of the good ones, maybe. But ending with a question, a slightly more positive question. Why do you love football? I think... A lot of my enjoyment stems from, you know, an early age. I, I I like all sorts of sports. I always have, and I think football helped me understand life. I was able to kind of um, understand the world around me, 
my thoughts, my emotions through the narratives that football creates. Really, but how does that how does that work? How can you understand your emotions through through the Premier League? Say, well, I think at the end of the day, stories are incredibly important, yeah. and what stories do uh, give you lots of different experiences, um, even though they're, you know possibly imaginary, to process you know your own your own perspectives, and you learn about the kind of people that you like that you um that you aspire to be and you you know you start conversations and discussions about topics of such a wide range that come from things that happen in football and so it encompasses so much so much experience and but at the same time is kind of you know one of the reasons the football is the most popular sport in the world is because it's so accessible it's very simple to understand uh, and i think that duality of being simple but also rich in its in its cultural tapestry you have thousands gathering every week millions you know watching on tv etc is is kind of beautiful that's a great answer yeah and like you say there's that ongoing narrative isn't there that you can always follow you can always tap into um, which i think is very satisfying can get a little bit all-consuming maybe i think you you know it depends on the kind of fan you are etc i i i do dislike debates about what's kind of a, a true fan um, and personally, for me, I think you have to have other things in your life. Uh, you know, it, it has to form part of a kind of, um, you know, wide range of interest and, and you know, stimuli. Because if your identity and emotions are too tied to your football club, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. Exactly. But I think it teaches us a lot about what community is, about roots, about history. And actually, if you reflect on why football clubs exist which is you know does like you said earlier come from a really strong community history um then i think there's something that you can kind of take away from being involved in that even if you don't necessarily kind of speak to people about it or go to that many games or anything it still can be uh you know a a connection between you and lots of other people for sure last question are Reading going to stay up this season? Stay up in League One, where you're currently in the bottom three. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yes, we are. Because if I said, well, I mean, I can't say no, can I? No. So, you know. Um, I think it depends if we get any more points deductions. If we don't, we've got a good chance of staying up. If the financial problems continue and we, you know... Um, have more points deductions or we go into administration or whatever then yeah yeah i, I think it's uh, gonna be very difficult thank you again to felix for that wonderful episode and i'll be off now but i'll leave you in the very capable hands going forward of felix himself who is of course a member of the technicast team morag izzy and olivia and there'll be many more fascinating episodes to come <laughs>